the writer of the letter, the first letter of Timothy, begins the second part of the letter like this. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings should be made for everyone. For kings and all who are in high positions. So that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. This is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Saviour who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. We don't know a lot about the second, the first and second letters of Timothy. Um, the majority of, of Bible scholars acknowledge that they were not written by Paul. Paul who wrote the main letters that we've got in the second our second part of the New Testament, but of course were written well before the Gospels. And that's not unusual for ancient letters. They were often written by people using the name of someone who was a great teacher or someone they wanted to emulate or or whose thoughts they wanted to expand on. So it was seen not as plagiarism, as it might be today, but was seen as uh, an accolade, as uh, a sense of importance for the, the person who they were emulating. And these letters were probably written anywhere between a decade or half a century after the original letters that we've, the scholars have all agreed were written by Paul. So whatever this author is wanting to do, it's pretty clear he wants people to pray. First of all, and that doesn't mean there's going to be a list of things because nothing else like this appears in the letter. It's primary. Is it something I said? <laughs> Ruth, did we not pay the bill this month? I wonder what happened. We've probably blown a fuse, but we don't need any more lights than this, do we? Pray not as in there's other things to be done, but this is the primary thing. This is the most important thing. You wonder what kind of a community the church would have been in the wider community if we'd taken this to heart and just pray all the time for everyone. Because, of course, you can't pray for someone, not seriously, without caring about them. And you can't care about them without doing something. It's all about compassion and empathy. And not just pray, but pray for everyone. Now, in a time when culture was far more stratified than it is for us today, a time when people were clearly seen, (coughs) excuse me, often by the way they dressed, which culture, which part of the culture they were from. 
In fact, there were laws about who was allowed to wear certain colours and who wasn't because we needed to be able to see very clearly who was in and who was out of certain classes in society. We still do it, but nothing in the same way. So a statement that says you should pray for everyone is not a bland statement. It's a radical statement. It's a radical statement. It's a political statement in a culture where it was very clear who was important and who wasn't. A culture built on slavery. The entire Roman, Greco-Roman world couldn't have existed the way it did without an underclass of slaves to do all the stuff that no one else wanted to do. Pray for everyone is a radical political act. It doesn't divide people into hard-working Australians and whoever else is in Australia who isn't hard-working Australians. Or dividing people into the quiet Australians and the rest. So all this political language that is used so often to divide us up. This is saying, pray for everyone. We've done it in the church too. We used to hear a lot of people talk about born-again Christians because there must obviously be another kind or committed Christians because it's obviously the uncommitted ones. So dividing up of things. According to this letter, just pray for everyone. Because, of course, if it's not everyone in, at some point everyone will find themselves on the outside. Either because you're the wrong gender, you're the wrong sexuality, you're the wrong age, you're the wrong dem- uh, socio-economic group, you have a disability. Sometimes we'll all find ourselves on the outer if everyone isn't in. And then it goes on and says... After saying pray for everyone, it says pray for kings and all who are in high positions. But didn't he just say pray for everyone? Why distinguish kings and those who are in high places? Rome had been a republic for 500 years before Julius Caesar came along and took over Rome. You remember the story, you've heard of the idea of crossing the Rubicon point of no return. The Rubicon was a small tributary, a tiny little river in the northern part of Italy. He crossed that and uh, against the orders of the Roman Senate and became, in effect, the emperor of Rome. And, and in effect, not abolished, but took all the power from the Senate. So Rome stopped being a republic around that time. And his predece- his, the person who came after him, um, Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born, according to the Gospel of Luke and and the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Augustus uh, became an emperor, and not only that, but there began to be this move in Rome to say not only was Julius Caesar a good man, he was a great man. In fact, he was so great, he was divine. And Augustus was divine too, the son of God. We see this writing in the New Testament and we hear it about Jesus. But in the day of Jesus and in the day of the New Testament, it would have been heard about Augustus, about the Caesar. He was the son of God. So huge political act to be able to say someone else was the son of God. And a little while on from Augustus, things developed even more that not only were these emperors gods, but they should be worshipped as gods. 
and there should be a worship of the, uh, of the emperor and special temples set up. And this happened around, somewhere around the time when we consider this letter must have been written. Somewhere around this time, they began this whole movement that the emperor was God and should be prayed to as God. But what does this letter say? Pray for kings, not to them, for them. Well, why would you pray for them? Because they're part of the everyone. They are not divine. They are not greater than anyone else. They're just like the rest of us. They're everyone else who is under God in the world of God. The emperor is under God and in the world of God. A radical and dangerous thing to say, but also a very unpopular thing to say because one of the benefits of emperor worship was an attempt to unify the empire. If everyone just shut up, said and did the same things, it will be fine. If those kids would stop getting out on the streets, quitting school and protesting, and just settle down and get on with their maths, everything will be fine. We've just got to knuckle under. Yeah, of course not everything's going to be to your benefit, or maybe to you might not like it, but that's what we've got to do. And here's a letter saying, no, don't pray to the emperor, pray for the emperor. Very powerful. Why? so that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. That sounds all right, doesn't it? A peaceable life. We've lived in the most magic time in history. Most of us here have managed to avoid going to war. Some of our parents and grandparents didn't. And if they didn't go, they were deeply affected by it, which of course has affected all of us. I was just slightly too young to be drafted into Vietnam. And we've never done it since. I've lived a magical life. I've lived in, I'm living in a time when prior to the 1970s, we had the largest growth of individual incomes that we've ever seen. The fastest growth and the largest growth uh, of consumer goods. All the stuff that I've had in my life to make my life easy. And you too. Now, that's changing. Inequality is growing and we're not sure what to do about it. We've also lived in a time when we've had a massive increase in life expectancy. A hundred years ago, this church would be empty if it included most of us here. Some of us wouldn't, would still be okay. But on average, we'd all be long gone. We've had a massive increase in life expectancy. What an, an enormous time to live. Now, that seems to be plateauing as well, for all kinds of reasons. One of them, obviously, being the rise in inequality. If you're poor, it's harder to be healthy. And if you're not healthy, it's harder to live longer. And we lived in a, we've lived in a time of enormous political stability. The Cold War, for all its terrors, didn't end up being a hot war. We didn't when I was a kid. We, it didn't happen that when I was a kid we assumed that the bomb was going to come. And it, and it hasn't. Not yet. But we're now, that all has gone to, we're living in a time of real political instability, aren't we? Let, let me just read you these names. Erdogan, Turkey. Duterte, Philippines. Putin, Russia. 
Jinping, China, Trump, USA, Bolsonaro, Brazil, Johnson, the UK. Each one of those names raises a whole set of, of a sense of uncertainty of what could happen next. An authoritarianism. That's why this guy's on the wall. This is Henry VIII. Is he still there? Oh, good. Henry VIII. And this is, the, well, this is a copy of a famous painting by Hans Holbein the Younger. It was done in the 1530s. And this is a copy because the original um, got burned up in the big fire at Whitehall, which was the, the Tudor uh, palace. But they copied it all over the country. There's lots and lots of these copies. And what's unusual about it is that at the time, the way that you made sure everyone knew that the painting they were looking at was of a king or an emperor was he had all the stuff. He usually held a sword, maybe an orb to represent the globe of the world, and a bunch of other, a crown obviously, and a bunch of other things. But here's a painting, the first one that we're aware of, of a ruler without all of that stuff. Because he doesn't need it, of course, because look at the power of him. Look at the way he's standing. Look at the way he's in charge of his world. Look how big he is. I, I, I can never look at this painting without thinking. I used to only think of Mussolini with that big jaw jutting out. But now I can't look at it without thinking of Donald Trump. <laughs> Doesn't it? Haven't you seen Trump standing like that? All the time. And if you look at photographs of Erdogan um, in Turkey, the same thing. We're, we're changing it into a different time. And maybe it's a time more like the time when the, book of the, the letter of Timothy was written. And I haven't mentioned climate change and probably don't need to because if you're not aware of what happened yesterday with the thousands and thousands of people, uh, not yesterday, Friday, who marched around the world and struck for climate change, then... There would be even less point of me mentioning it if you're not aware of it. But if you are, then we know that this is our great upheaval. The upheaval that will throw all of these other things into the shade. This is the time when, the kind of time when this letter was written. This is the time when there were a number of, uh, of upheavals. We've heard of the famous ones, the Emperor Nero, the Emperor Caligula, they would have been at this time. And they, there was an enormous sense of uncertainty all the time because you never knew what they were going to do next, particularly those two. There were others who were slightly calmer, but those two, you could never tell what they were going to do next. And I don't know about you, but every time I turn on my computer in the morning because they've had a whole day while I've been asleep in the United States. I'm worried about whatever Trump might have said next or any of these other leaders that I've mentioned. There's a sense of uncertainty. And that's the time that they were living in. Not, maybe not unlike ours. So then the letter goes on and says, this is right and acceptable, i.e. to pray for everyone, to pray for emperors and kings, not to them, this is right and acceptable in the sight of God who desires everyone to be saved or much better word, to be rescued. Desires everyone to be rescued and come to a knowledge of the truth. To live in truth. Not to live in falsehood. Not to live in a lie that's been built up. Not to live in um, 
pretending something isn't happening, i.e. climate change, but to live in the truth when it's wonderful and when it's terrible, but to be courageous enough to be living in the truth. For there's one God, there's one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself as a ransom, a ransom for all. You only ever ransom any, something that is valuable. That's the thing that you're willing to give your treasure to, something that is valuable. The sense that everyone, according to this letter, is valuable and being ransomed, who gave himself a ransom for all, for everyone. That's the world in which we live. A world in, of uncertainty, but underneath it all, a world where everyone is of great value to God. I used to often talk to kids when I was doing a lot of work with kids uh, on remand and, and, and struggling with uh, issues with the law. And one of the questions I would often ask them is, you know, when you're at home with your parents or your foster parents or your grandparents or whoever you were living with when you were younger, do you have a fridge? Yeah, yeah, we always had a fridge. What was on the fridge? Were there paintings that you'd done at school on the fridge? Were there photographs of you? And sometimes there were. As often as not, there weren't. I say, well, I think what we're talking about here, when we talk about God's love for everyone, is as if God's got a big fridge and all the stuff on it is photographs of you. My, my fridge is covered with drawings from my grandchildren, photographs of them. So every time I go into the fridge... There they are looking at me. So I don't forget them. So I don't forget how interesting they are. So I don't forget how unique each one of them is. So I don't forget what it is they're producing, what it is that they're living with at the moment. I've got a painting of a, of a pancake on the fridge from my seven-year-old granddaughter who happens to really have a thing for pancakes at the moment. That's her thing. Six weeks from now, it'll be something else. And, and hopefully I'll put that painting on the, on the fridge too. And I would want to say to these kids, that's what we're talking about here, is a God who not, it's not everyone as in one lump, but everyone as in each of us as individuals. What is valuable to God is us. And if God has a big fridge, then on it is photographs of you doing dumb things, doing wonderful things, and there's little paintings on there that you've done, things that are important to you. They're all there. That's what praying for and being prayed for everyone is all about. That's enough.